23, in warm, how confoundedly cold I am sitting in that chair all night, too ridiculous, if I had had it I mean, if I hadn't been alone, that wouldn't have happened, she would have waked me, she what the deuce made him use the feminine pronoun, at two o'clock he rose and entered his breakfast room, the table was laid as usual one large cup and saucer, one plate, one egg cup, one knife, and one fork, he did not know wherefore, but he felt to want the number increased, John brought up a slice of broiled salmon and one egg, Columpsion got into a passion, and ordered a second edition, the morning was rainy, so Columpsion remained at home, and employed himself by kicking about the ottoman, and mentally multiplying all the single articles in his establishment by two, the dinner hour arrived, and there was the same singular provision for one, he rang the bell, and ordered John to furnish the table for another, John obeyed, though not without some strong misgiving of his master's sanity, as the edibles consisted of a sole, a mutton chop, and a partridge, when John left the room at his master's request, Columpsion rose and locked the door, having placed a chair opposite, he resumed his seat, and commenced a series of pantomimic gestures, which were strongly confirmatory of John's suspicions, he seemed to be holding an inaudible conversation with some invisible being, placing the choicest portion of the soul in a plate, and seemingly desiring John to deliver it to the unknown, as John was not there, he placed it before himself, and commenced daintily and smilingly picking up very minute particles, as though he were too much delighted to eat, he then bowed and smiled, and extending his arm, appeared to fill the opposite glass, and having actually performed the same operation with his own, he bowed and smiled again, and sipped the brilliant zers, he then rang the bell violently, and in locking the door, rushed rapidly back to his chair, as though he were fearful of committing a rudeness by leaving it, the table being replenished, and John again dismissed the room, the same pantomime commenced, the one mutton chop seemed at first to present an obstacle to the proper conduct of the scene, but gracefully uncovering the partridge, and as gracefully smiling towards the invisible, he appeared strongly to recommend the bird in preference to the beast, dinner at length concluded, he rose, and apparently led his phantom guest from the table, and then returning to his armchair, threw himself into it, and, crossing his hands upon his breast, commenced a careful examination of the cinders and himself, his rumination ended in a doze, and his doze in a dream, in which he fancied himself abroad did make Java Sparrow during the molting season, his cage was surrounded by beautiful and blooming girls, who seemed to pity his condition, and vie with each other in proposing the means of rendering him more comfortable, some spoke of elastic cotton shirts, linsey woolsey jackets, and silk nightcaps, others of merino hose, silk feet and cotton tops, shirt buttons and warming pants, whilst Mrs. Great and Mrs. Wadley got sang and echoed what if, what a pity the bird is alone, a change came o'er the spirit of his dream, he thought that the molting season was over, and that he was rejoicing in the fullness of a sleeky plumage, and by his side was a java sparrow s, chirping and hopping about, rendering the cage as populous to him as though he were the tenant of a bird fancier's shop, then he awoke just as old John was finishing a glass of Madeira, preparatory to arousing Columpsion, for the purpose of delivering to him a scented note, which had just been left by the footman of Mrs. Wadleygott, it was lucky for John that ACA had been blessed with pleasant dreams, or his attachment to Madeira might have occasioned his discharge from number 24, Pleasant Terrace, the note was an invitation to Mrs. Wadleygott's opera box for that evening, the performance was to be Rossini's La Cenerentola, 
and as Columpsion recollected the subject of the opera, his heart fluttered in his bosom. A prince marrying a cinder sister for love, what must the happy state be or rather what must it not be to provoke such a condescension? Columpsion never appeared to such advantage as he did that evening, he was dressed to a miracle of perfection his spirits were so elastic that they must have carried him out of the box into Thopselly. Had not Mrs. Wadley got cleverly surrounded him by the detachment from the Corps of Eighteen Daughters, which had on that night been placed under her command, Columpsion's state of mind did not escape the notice of the fair campaigners, and the most favorable deductions were drawn from it in relation to the charitable combination which they had formed for his ultimate good, and all seemed determined to afford him every encouragement in their power. Every witticism that he uttered elicited countless smiles every criticism that he delivered was universally applauded in short. Agamemnon Columpsion Applebyte was voted the most delightful boy in the universe, and Agamemnon Columpsion Applebyte gave himself a plumper to the same opinion. On the 31st of the following month, a string of carriages surrounded Street George's Church, Hanover Square, and precisely at a quarter to twelve. A.M. Agamemnon Columpsion Applebyte placed a plain gold ring on the finger of Miss Juliana Teresa Wadleygott, being a necessary preliminary to the introduction of our hero, the heir of Applebyte. Epigram. I wonder if Broom thinks as much as he talks, said a punster perusing a trial, I vow. Since his lordship was made Baron Vox, he's been Vox at Pretrianai Hill, the two fatal C.H.I.R.O.P.E.D.I.S.T.s, our great ancestor, John Miller, has recorded in his Book of Jests, an epitaph written upon an amateur corn cutter, named Roger Horton, who, trying one day his corn to mow off, the razor slipped, and cut his toe off. The painful similarity of his fate with that of another corn experimentalist, has given rise to the following, epitaph on Lord John Russell, who expired politically, after a lingering illness, on Monday evening, August 30th, 1841, in Mentoques. Beneath the stone lies Johnny Russell, who for his place had many a tussle, trying one day the corn to cut down. The motion failed, and he was put down. The benches which he nearly grew to, the opposition quickly flew to, the fact it was so mortifying, that little Johnny took to dying. Shall Great Olympus to a molehill stoop? Some difficulty has arisen as to the production of Knowles's new play at the Haymarket Theatre, Mr. Charles Keane and Miss Helen Fawcett having objected to hear the play read because their respective parts had not been previously submitted to them. Sunday Times. We are of opinion that they were decidedly right. One might as well expect a child to spell without learning the alphabet, as either of the above persons to understand nulls, unless enlightened by a long course of previous instruction. The letter of introduction, from a Ms. drama called The Court of Victoria, seen in Windsor Castle, Her Majesty discovered sitting thoughtfully at an escritoire. Enter the Lord Chamberlain. Lord Chamberlain, may it please your majesty, a letter from the Duke of Wellington, the Queen opens the letter, oh, a person for the vacant place of Premier show the bearer in my Lord, exit Lord Chamberlain, the Queen muses, Sir Robert Peel I had heard that name before, as connected with my family, if I remember rightly, he held the situation of advisor to the Crown in the reign of Uncle William, and was discharged for exacting a large discount on all the state receipts, Yet Wellington is very much interested in his favor. Enter the Lord Chamberlain, who ushers in Sir Robiardi, and then retires. As he is going Lord Chamberlain aside, if you do get the berth, Sir Robert, I hope you will not give me warning. Exit. Sir Robiardi looking demurely. Hem. The Queen regards him very attentively. 
the queen aside. I don't much like the looks of the fellow that affectation of simplicity is evidently intended to conceal the real cunning of his character. Aloud, you are of course aware of the nature and the duties of the situation which you solicit, Sir Orobiardi. Oh, yes, your majesty, I have filled it before, and liked it very much. The queen, it's a most responsible post, for upon your conduct much of the happiness of my other servants depends, Sir Orobiardi. I am aware of that, your majesty. But as no one can hope to please everybody, I will only answer that one half shall be perfectly satisfied. The Queen, you have recently returned from Tamworth, Sir Orobiardi. Yes, Your Majesty, the Queen, we will dispense with forms. At Tamworth, you have been practicing as a quack doctor, Sir Orobiardi. Yes, Madam, I was brought up to doctoring, and am a professor of sleight of hand, the Queen. What have you done in the latter art to entitle you to such a distinction, Sir Orobiardi? I have performed some very wonderful changes. When I was out of place, I had opinions strongly opposed to Catholic emancipation, but when I got into service I changed them in the course of a few days. The Queen, I have heard that you boast of possessing a nostrum for the restoration of the public good. What is it, Sir Orobiardi? Am I to consider myself as regularly called in, the Queen? That is a question I decline answering at present, Sir Orobiardi. Then I regret that I must also remain silent. The Queen aside, the wily fox. Aloud are you aware that great distress exists in the country, Sir Orobiardi? Oh, yes. I have heard that there are several families who keep no man-servant, and that numerous clerks, weavers, and other artisans, occupy second floors. The Queen, I have heard that the people are wanting bread, Sir Orobiardi. Ha, ha, that was from the late premier, I suppose, he merely forgot an adjective it is cheap bread that the people are clamoring for, the queen, and why can they not have it, Sir Orobiardi, I have consulted with the Duke of Richmond upon the subject, and he says it is impossible, the queen, but why, Sir Orobiardi, wheat must be lower before bread can be cheaper, the queen, well, Sir Orobiardi, and rents must be less if that is the case, and the queen, well, Sir Orobiardi, and that the landowners won't agree to, the Queen, well, Sir Orobiardi, and, then, I can't keep my place a day, the Queen, then the majority of my subjects are to be rendered miserable for the advantage of the few, Sir Orobiardi, that's the principle of all good governments, besides, cheap bread would be no benefit to the masses, for wages would be lower, the Queen, do you really believe such would be the case, Sir Orobiardi? Am I regularly called in, the Queen? You evade a direct answer, I see. Granting such to be your belief, your friends and landowners would suffer no injury, for their incomes would procure them as many luxuries, Sir Orobiardi, not if they were to live abroad, or patronize foreign manufactures, and should wages be higher. What would they say to me after all the money they had expended in Brie? I mean at the Carlton Club, if I allow the value of their dirty acres to be reduced? The Queen, pray, what do you call such views, Sir Orobiardi? Patriotism, the Queen, charity would be a better term, as that is said to begin at home. How long were you in your last place, Sir Orobiardi? Not half so long as I wished for the sake of the country, the Queen. Why did you leave, Sir Orobiardi? Somebody said I was saucy and somebody else said I was not honest and somebody else said I had better go, the Queen. Who was the latter somebody? Sir Orobiardi, my master, the Queen, 
your exposure of my late premier's faults, and your present application for his situation, result from disinterestedness, of course, Sir Orobiardi, of course, madam, the queen, then salary is not so much an object as a comfortable situation, Sir Orobiardi, I beg pardon, but I've been out of place ten years, and had a small family to support, wages island therefore, some sort of a consideration, the queen, I don't quite like you, Sir Orobiardi glancing knowingly at the queen, I don't think there is anyone that you can have better, the queen, I'm afraid not, Sir Orobiardi, then, am I regularly called in, the queen, yes, you can take your boxes to Downing Street, ex Yankembo, parliamentary intentions, Mr. Muntz, we understand, intends calling the attention of Parliament, at the earliest possible period, to the state of the crops, Lord Palmerston intends proposing, that a looking glass for the use of members should be placed in the ante-room of the House, and that it shall be called the new mirror of Parliament, Mr. T. Duncombe intends moving that the plans of Sir Robert Peel be immediately submitted to the photographic process, in order that some light may be thrown upon them as soon as possible, the Earl of Coventry intends suggesting, that every member of both houses be immediately supplied with a copy of the work called, Ten Minutes Advice on Corns, in order to prepare Parliament for a full description of the Corn Laws. Extra fashionable news, Colonel Sithorpe has expressed his intention of becoming the blue-faced monkey at the zoological gardens with his countenance. On next Wednesday, Lord Melbourne has received visits of condolence on his retirement from office. From Aldgate Pump Canning's statue in Palace Yard the three kings of Brentford and the Bell Savage. Ludgate Hill, Her Royal Highness the Princess, her two nurses, and a pap spoon, took an airing twice round the great hall of the palace, at one o'clock yesterday, the Burlington Arcade will be thrown open to visitors tomorrow morning, gentlemen intending to appear there, are requested to come with toothpicks and full dress walking canes, Sir Francis Burdett's top boots were seen, on last Saturday, walking into Sir Robert Peel's house, accompanied by the legs of that venerable Turner. His Grace the Duke of Wellington inspected all the passengers in Pall Mall, from the steps of the United Service Clubhouse, and expressed himself highly pleased with the celerity of the buses and cabs, and the effective state of the pedestrians generally. His Royal Highness the Duke of Sussex has, in the most unequivocal manner, expressed his opinion on the state of the weather which he pronounces to be hot, hot, all hot, a singular inadvertence. A good deal of merriment was caused in the House of Commons by Mr. Bernal M. Commodore Napier addressing the members as, gentlemen, this may be excusable in young members, but the oldest parliamentary reporter has no recollection of the term being used by anyone who had sat a session in the House, too much familiarity, and see, punches pencilings Wimbervii, the ministry's owed to the passions, not by Collins, when the Whig ministry had run, nor left behind a mother's son, the Tories, that their leader's call, came thronging round him. One and all, exulting, praying, cringing, coaxing, expert at humbugging and hoaxing, by turns they felt an honest zeal for private good and public weal, till all at once they raised such yells, as rung in Apsley House the bells, and as they sought snug berths to get in Bobby Peel's new cabinet, each, for interest ruled the hour, would prove his taste for place and power, first fall its hand, his skill to try, upon the seal's bewildered leg, but back recoiled he scarce knew why of Lindhurst's angry scowl afraid. Next Stanley rushed with frenzied air, his eager haste brooked no delay, he rudely seized the four-inch air, and bade poor Cupid trudge away. 
with woeful visage Melbourne saw me a pint of double X his grief beguiled, and inly pondering o'er his fate, he bade th attendant paw boy draw it mild, but thou, Sir Jamie Graham Prigg, what was thy delighted musing, now accepting, now refusing, till on the admiralty pitched, still would that thought his speech prolong, to gain the place for which he long had itched, he called on Bobby still through all the song, but ever as his sweetest theme he chose, a sovereign's golden chink was heard at every close, and Pollock grimly smiled, and shook his powdered wig, and longer had he drone but, with a frown broom impatient rose, he threw the benches snoring bishops down, and, with a withering look, the wig denouncing trumpet took, and made a speech so fierce and true, thrashing, with might and main, both friend and foe, and ever and anon he beat, with doubled fist his cushy on seat, and though sometimes, each breathless pause between, astonished Melbourne at his side, his moderating voice applied, yet still he kept his stern, and altered mean, while battering the wigs and tore eyes black and blue, by ravings, Goulburn, to no theme were fixed, not if nigh virtuous without its spots, with piety thy politics were mixed, and now they courted Peel, now called on Dr. Watts, with drooping jaw, like one half-screwed, Lord Johnny saw me in doleful mood, and for his secretarial seat, sent forth his howlings sad, but sweet lost Normandy poured forth his sad adieu, while Palmerston, with graceful air, wildly tossed his scented hair, and pensive Morpeth joined the sniveling crew, yet still they lingered round with fond delay, humming, hawing, stopping, musing, Tory rascals all abusing, till forced to move away, but, oh, how altered was the whining tone when, loud tongued Flinthurst, bat and blushing white, his gown across his shoulders flying, his wig with virgin powder white, made an ear-splitting speech that down to a Windsor rung, the Tory's call, that Billy Holmes well knew, the turncoat down sheer and his orange crew, Wicklow and Howard both were seen brushing away the wig at green, Madeline and Derry laughed to hear, and Ingley screamed and shook his ass's ear last Bobby Peel, with hypocritic air, he with modest look came sneaking, first to the home, his easy vows at first, but soon he saw the treasury's red chair, whose soft inviting seat he loved the best, they would have thought, who heard his words, they saw in Britain's cause a patriot stand, the proud defender of his land, to awed and listening senate speaking, but as his fingers touched the purse's strings, the chinking metal made a magic sound, while hungry placemen gathered fast around, and he, as if by chance or play, or that he would their venal votes repay, the golden treasures round upon them flings, Sir Robert Peel and the Queen, upon the first interview of the Queen with Sir Robert Peel, Her Majesty was determined to answer only in monosyllables to all he said, and, in fact, to make her replies an echo, and nothing more, to whatever he said to her, the following dialogue, which we had thrown into verse for the purpose of smoothing it the tone of it, as spoken, having been on one side, at least, rather rough ensued between the illustrious persons alluded to, he, before we into minor details go, do I possess your confidence or no, she, Mumber he, you shall not vex me, though your treatment's rough, Mumber madam, I am made of sterner stuff, she, stuff, he, really, if thus your minister you flout, a single syllable he can't get out, she, get out, he, but try me, madam, time indeed will show unto what lengths to serve you I would go, she, go, he, we both have power, tease doubtful which is greater, these crooked words had better be made straighter, she, traitor traitor, he, farewell, 
and never in this friendly strain my proffered aid forgot I breathe again, she, gone, I breathe again, songs of the city, number two, I cannot rove with thee, where Zephyr's float sweet sylvan seems devoted to the loves, for, oh, I had not got one decent coat, nor can I sport a single pair of gloves, gladly I'd wander o'er the verdant lawn, where graze contentedly the fleecy flock, but can I show myself in gills so torn, or brave the public gaze in such a stock, I know thou lieutenant answer me that love is blind, and faults in one it worships can't perceive, it must be sightless, truly, not to find the hole that's gaping in my threadbare sleeve, farewell, my love for, oh, my heaven, we part, and though it cost me all the pangs of hell, the herd shall not on thee inflict a smart, by calling after us, there goes as well, a private box, during the clear out on Wednesday last in Downing Street, a small chest, strongly secured, was found among some models of balloting boxes, it had evidently been forgotten for some years, and upon opening it, was found to contain the wood promises of 1832, they were immediately conveyed to Lord Melbourne, who appeared much astonished at these resuscitati on the lost medical papers of the British Association, it is somewhat remarkable, observe the journals of the past week, that the medical division of this scientific meeting has not contributed one single paper this year in furtherance of its object, although the communications from that section have usually been of a highly important character, the journals may think it somewhat remarkable we do not at all, for here, as in every other event of the day, a great deal depends upon being behind the curtain, and as the greater portion of our life is passed in that locality, we are always to be relied upon for authenticity in our statements the plain true file and that the papers were inadvertently lost, and rather than lead to some unpleasant disclosures, in which the eminent professor to whom they were entrusted would have been deeply implicated, it was thought best to say nothing about them, by chance they fell into the hands of the manager of one of our perambulating theatres, who was twalling his way from the west of England to Agam races, and having deposited them in his portable green room, under the especial custody of the clown, the doctor, and the overbearing parochial authority, he duly remitted them to our office, we have been too happy in giving them a place in our columns, feeling an honest pride in us taking the lead of the chief scientific publications of the day, it will be seen that they are drawn up as a report, all ready for publication, according to the usual custom of such proceedings, where everyone knows beforehand what they are to dispute or agree with, Dr. Splitner communicated a remarkable case of animal magnetism, Eugene Dahlgren, aged 21, a young man of bilious and interesting temperament, having been mesmerized, was rendered so keenly magnetic, as to give rise to a most remarkable train of phenomena, on being seated upon a music stool, he immediately becomes an animated compass, and turns round to the north, knives and forks at dinner invariably fly towards him, and he is not able to go through any of the squares, in consequence of being attracted firmly to the iron railings, as most of the experiments took place at the North London Hospital, Euston Square was his chief point of attraction, and when he was removed, it was always found necessary to break off the railings and take them away with him, this accounted for the decrepit condition of the fleur de that surround the enclosure, which was not, as generally supposed, the work of the university pupils residing in Gower Place, perfect insensibility to pain supervened at the same time, and his friends took advantage of this circumstance to send him, by way of delicate compliment, to a lying-in lady, in the style of a pedestrian pincushion, his cheeks being stuck full of minikin pins, 
on the right side, forming the words, health to the babe, and on the left, happiness to the mother. Dr. Mortar read a talent paper on the cure of strabismus, or squinting, by dividing the muscles of the eye. The patient, a working man, squinted so terribly, that his eyes almost got into one another's sockets, and at times he was only able to see by looking down the inside of his nose and out at the nostrils. The operation was performed six weeks ago, when, on cutting through the muscles, its effects were instantly visible, both the eyes immediately diverging to the extreme outer angles of their respective orbits. Dr. Sharpie inquired if the man did not find the present state of his vision still very perplexing. Dr. Mortar replied, that so far from injuring his sight, it had proved highly beneficial, as the patient had procured a very excellent situation in the new police, and received a double salary, from the power he possessed of keeping an eye upon both sides of the road at the same time. An elaborate and highly scientific treatise was then read by Dr. Sexton, upon a disease which had been very prevalent in town during the spring, and had been usually termed the influenza. He defined it as a disease of convenience, depending upon various exciting causes acting upon the mind. For instance, Mrs. A. Lady residing in Belgrave Square, was on the eve of giving a large party, when, upon hearing that Mr. A. had made an unlucky speculation in the funds, the whole family were seized with influenza so violently, that they were compelled to postpone the reunion, and live upon the provided supper for a fortnight afterwards. Miss B. was a singer at one of our large theatres and had a part assigned to her in a new opera. Not liking it, she worried herself into an access of influenza, which unluckily seized her the first night the opera was to have been played, but the most marked case was that of Mr. C. A. Clerk in a city house of business, who was attacked and cured within three days. It appeared that he had been dining that afternoon with some friends, who were going to Greenwich Fair the next day, and on arriving at home, was taken ill with influenza so suddenly that he was obliged to dispatch a note to that effect to his employer, stating also his fear that he should be unable to attend at his office on the morrow. Dr. Sexton said he was indebted for an account of the progress of his disease to a young medical gentleman, clinical clerk at a leading hospital, who lodged with the patient in Bartholomew Close. The report had been drawn up for the Lancet, but Dr. S. had procured it by great interest. May 30, 1841. 11 p.m. present symptoms, complains of his employer, and the Bora being obliged to be at the office next morning, has just eaten a piece of cold beef and pickles, with a pint of stout, pulse about 75, and considerable defluxion from the nose, which he thinks produced by getting a piece of cayenne pepper in his eye, swallowed a crumb, which brought on a violent fit of coughing, wishes to go to bed, May 31st, 9 a.m. has passed eight a tolerable night, but appears restless and unable to settle to anything, thinks he could eat some broiled ham if he had it, but not possessing any, has taken the following, Horex Infus, Coffee LBJ Saccharae Symbol, Dramia Lactis Vacchi Symbol, Bounce J Fort Mistura, Poculamane Sumendum, a plaster ordered to be applied to the inside of the stomach, consisting of potted bloater spread upon bread and butter, 11, AM appears rather hotter since breakfast, change of air recommended, and Greenwich decided upon, Half past eleven, complains of the draught and noise of the second-class railway carriages, but is otherwise not worse, thinks he should like a drain of half and half, has blown his nose once in the last quarter of an hour, 2 p.m., since a light dinner of rump steaks and stout, a considerable change has taken place, he appears laboring under cerebral excitement and short pipes, 
and says he shall have a regular beanish day, and goat similar to bricks, calls the waiter up to him in one of the booths, and has ordered a glass of cocktail with the chill off and a cinder in it. 3. P.N. has sallied out into the fair, still much excited, calling every female he meets, Susan, and pronouncing the isses with a whistling accent, expresses a desire to ride in the ships that go round and round. Half past three. The motion of the ships has tended considerably to relieve his stomach. Pulse slow and countenance pale, with a desire for a glass of ale, has entered a peep show, and is now arguing with the exhibitor upon the correctness of his view of the siege of St. Jane Docker, which he maintains was a seaport, and not a field with a burning windmill, as represented in the view. 8. P.M. After rambling vaguely about the fair all the afternoon, he has decided upon taking a hot air bath in Algar's crown and anchor booth, evidently delirious, has put on a false nose, and purchased a tear coat rattle, appears laboring under violent spasmodic action of the muscles of his legs, as he dances, Jim along Jose, when he sets to his partner in a country dance of eighty couple, half past ten, P.N. has just intimated that he does not see the use of going home, as you can always go there when you can go nowhere else is seated straddling across one of the tables, on which he is beating time to the band with a hooky stick, will not allow the state of his pulse to be ascertained, but says we may feel his fist if we like. 11. Considerable difficulty experienced in getting the patient to the railroad, but we at last succeeded, after telling everyone in the carriage that he wasn't afraid of any of them. He fell into a deep sturdle or sleep. On arriving at home, he got into bed with his boots on, and passed aid. 